And all God's people said, I love that song. You can be seated. Thank you, Walter, Chris, and Allison. Thank you all so much. God's good, amen? Amen. Well, now that you're seated, why don't you take your Bibles and let's go to... uh, Just go ahead and go to Ephesians 5. We'll we'll start there in just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, the passage that Robbie read, which is in... uh, 1 Corinthians 11, correct? <laughs> it's not an easy passage. And uh, um, interesting, just so interesting how many uh, passages in the Bible deal with marriage. Really, to be honest with you, I said something last week that really wasn't true. Well, it is true, but it's not true. Honestly, every verse in the Bible deals with, deals with marriage. It, any verse that helps us become more like Christ helps our marriage. Am I right? So literally every verse in the Bible is a marriage verse, but there are a lot of uh, marriage verses in in the Bible. Now I want you to hold yourself there at uh, Ephesians uh, 5, and uh, I want to mention something about what Robbie read. I'm going to paraphrase, so you don't have to go to 1 Corinthians 11, but there's some statements but one of the most profound statements that's made in 1 Corinthians 11, because he's talking, and, he, and, and it's logic, it's God's created order, okay? He, and of course, Paul's reminding him, who was made first, Adam or Eve? You can answer this, who was made first, Adam or Eve? Adam. But then he says, but, but where did Adam come from? Did Adam appear on his own? No, who made Adam? God did. But then he says, now... Every man that's ever born is born through a woman. So who's, who's in charge? Not the man, ultimately. Not the man, not the woman, but who's in charge? God is. But then, but then there's other things where the Bible describes exactly how that's to function in the local church or in the home. But it just makes sense. So 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those just absolutely wonderful, wonderful passages. But one of the... And it gets into head coverings. We, we don't use head coverings today, do we not? I don't have a head covering. I don't have much on my head. But I will tell you what, the, what he says over there um, in chapter 11. I think it's verse 16. It's okay. You'll find it. But Paul says when he's arguing about head coverings, and it's a sign of submission. Okay? And, and, of course, you're dealing with worship. And, and how a lady presents herself in worship because the women did not lead worship, the men did. There's, the, Paul deals with that in the book of 1 Corinthians. So he's talking about a symbol of submission. But there's a great little phrase that tells us that, that we may not have head coverings, but today, 2,000 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we still know what it means for somebody to act humbly or to be submissive. Because Paul says, judge for yourselves. So today, we don't have head coverings, but you and I know if somebody... We know two things. We know if a man's dressing like a woman, right? We can tell, and we can tell that it's unnatural. We don't have to have anybody tell us that. It's unnatural. Judge for yourselves or... If a woman is acting like a man, like taking authority of a man. 
So that's why in 1 Corinthians 11, and we may not get there today, but just a thought where Paul says, because he's talking about some cultural things that were going on in Corinth that may not be happening in Rome because of the immorality that certain immorality that was being spurned and promoted in Corinth that didn't happen in Rome. So there's a cultural thing. So Paul just says, judge for yourselves. You know, and, and so we do know. We can tell what it means to be male and female. Now, um, if you have your Bibles, I mentioned uh, Ephesians. Um, that's Ephesians 5, and I'm going to read here in just a second. Uh, but before we get to Ephesians 5 and talk about some things, I, I, I want to uh, give you three, well, Diane seasoned me. I, I started out having 12 points. I don't have 12 points anymore, okay? So Diane said, she was so sweet last night, or day, it was Saturday morning, she said, she says, well, <laughs> she says, well, honey, you, you don't have to cram it all in in one service. She's so sweet. She was so sweet. Isn't Diane wise? So I have six points. I'm not even going to cover them all. I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to talk about some other things. But I want you to know, because the family, whether we're talking about raising children or what it means to be a, a, a male and female, uh, do you understand that if you're here today and you're married, you're teaching your children what it means to be masculine and feminine? That's your responsibility. No, it's not the school's. It's not the, it's not the society. It's yours. How to, so... If our church doesn't have masculine men and feminine females, if we don't have masculine men or feminine females, it's our own fault because our parents are supposed to be doing that. So it's things like that that the Bible teaches. Uh, it's not just about the marriage covenant. It's about family. It's, it's God has designed this, and, and if we have to do it God's way. So what I'm going to do this morning, I have five or six points. I'm just going to read you a couple of thoughts, and we'll visit them all because they're profound. Uh, besides the other ones I didn't even bring with me. And then we're going to talk about, just pick maybe one or two of these and just walk through the scriptures with you this morning. Um, when, when we're dealing with marriage or family, uh, sexual identity, and we'll deal with that specifically in, in a, a, a Sunday at some point, there's, you have what's been instituted by God at creation. Okay, So you have, we, we call them creation ordinances. Okay? where the authority is creation. And you find that a lot in the New Testament, where Paul and Peter refer to created order. And so they're, they, they're either promoting something or they're eliminating something or they're rebuking somebody for disobeying God's created order. So when we're looking at whether it's how to raise children, what does it mean to be masculine, what does it mean to be feminine, whatever, whatever we're dealing with, Number one is God has a created order that we're to uh, follow, or it was instituted at creation, and it's clear. You can read the Bible and you can see that. The second thing that we concern ourselves with is imitating Jesus Christ, okay? There's some issues that are not as clear as you wish they were, but they become much clearer when you and I pursue imitating the life of Jesus Christ. So... We, we have, so as we're pursuing being a godly male, a godly husband, a godly father, a godly grandfather, whatever, a godly mother, grandmother, uh, a submissive child, whatever it would be, 
God has a created, God created, He instituted creation. We can follow that. Number two, we also do it through imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, we have insight into culture. That's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 11, where because things that things are fluid. So what might be happening at Corinth 2,000 years ago is not exactly the same thing that's happening in America 2,000 years later, but the root cause is the same. So we have insight, biblical insight, into why the culture's wrong. And we do that today. I mean, there's things happening in America, um, sex changes, okay? Gender, you know, g- people that are changing their gender. Now, the Bible doesn't speak specifically about that, and it talks about dressing like the opposite sex, but we have, we have insight into what the Scriptures say, and we know whether that's right or wrong. We have insight because the Bible tells us, not specifically a verse, but we can take some verses and we can, we can say this is wrong because of God's Word. So when, when you and I are looking at the Bible, we can, we can base it on, we're talking about the family, God's created order, instituted at creation, uh, following Jesus, imitating Christ, affects it. And then sometimes we just have biblical insight into whether to call something sinful or call something not sinful. Now, before we read Ephesians 5, and I'm going to be all over the place again, and I apologize for that, but just so many things I want to talk about. I want to take you to something precious. Okay, Can I take you to something precious? Um, and I'm going to take a lot of time doing this, but you have to see this. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 24. Did you know the longest love story in the Bible is found in the book of Genesis? Um, I can remember this, and, and I brought my Genesis. I, when we did Genesis verse by verse three or four years ago, this is the Bible I used. So here's the Bible I taught from the book of Genesis. So I brought it with me because all my notes are in there. And so I want you to go to Genesis chapter 24. And this is where uh, Isaac's going to get a wife. You, you remember the story. And I'm not going to go over the whole chapter. It'll take too long. But remember the scene. Isaac needs a wife, right? Now, I'm not going to read beginning at chapter 24, verse 1, and read the whole chapter. But this whole context is about God, uh, Abraham arranging for Isaac to get a wife. Now, let me ask you. Just before you read it, you, might, you already know the answer more than likely. Did Abraham send his servant, Eleazar, who had been his servant for decades, did he send Eleazar to go to a pagan land of people he did not know to find a wife? No. He went to where Abraham would know was God's people, his people. Did you understand the logic here? So Abraham knew, I want, he says, I don't want you to go to the Canaanites. I don't want you to go find a wife among the pagans. Is that not, I mean, this is biblical principles. I want you to go to my people. And I, it ends up being a first or second cousin, but, but we know historically that was okay then as far as genetically. So, so that's where they go. They go to the land that Abraham knows of and the people he knows and relatives and they choose a spouse from his own people. And we might say, we might say in our world, a Christian. You know what I'm saying? As we look at it, where, where do you want to find a spouse? Well, I want to find a spouse from the church. I want to find a spouse through a ministry. Or I want to find a spouse that, 
is in the, is on the mission field. I, this, where do you want to find a spouse? Well, Abraham wanted Isaac to find, if you don't mind me saying, a like-minded, spiritual-thinking spouse. You know, or as we might say, a Christian spouse. Now, I know it wasn't exactly the same, but, but he desired for Isaac to have, if you want to put it in quote, a Christian spouse. So that's where he sent his servant, and that's where he sent the people. That's where they were going to go look, among Christian people. And, and folks, the same, the same is true today. Now, this is, this is an absolutely wonderful story. And I just want to mention, if you have your Bibles open uh, to, to here, I just want to show you a couple of things that just really thrill you to death. Look at verse, uh, uh, look at verse uh, 16. I brought a small print Bible of all things. Uh, does verse 15 start before he had finished? Is that verse 15? Thank you. Let's move on, okay? Verse 15 says, Before he had finished speaking... Behold, Rebekah, who was born uh, to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now look what it says. Now, if you're going to pick a woman that's a Christian, wouldn't you rather have a good-looking Christian woman? Am I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. This is exactly what the text says. God arranged all this at the proper time. They traveled hundreds of miles to get here. It's not like they plant, They didn't call on the cell phone and say, we want Rebecca to meet us with, her, with a pot on her shoulder, drawing water. God did all this. But it says the young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden who's who no man had known. She went down to the spring and she filled her jar and she came up. Now, I'm not going to read all the story. You can read it for yourself when you get home. You find out that not only is she beautiful and is she at the right place at the right time, she has an incredible serving spirit. She, she provides water for their, for, for all their, for their, not her, for their animals. She, she fills her jar, which, you know, whether it's a 15-gallon jug or 5-gallon, whatever it was, it's large, and that she's, she serves these people. She, she has a servant's heart. Do you know the New Testament says one of the, one of the key uh, uh, attributes of a good marriage is that both spouses are, have a servant's heart? We're going to learn that in just a minute. So, so you find out that Rebecca was was you find out she was a servant. Well, you find out three things. She's pure, okay? She's a virgin. She has a servant's heart. Now, if you, are you going to pick a wife? Are you going to pick a spouse? Hey, what does, what does Peter say that's precious in the sight of God? A gentle and what? Quiet spirit is precious in the eyes of God. Isn't that interesting? Well, Rebecca was pure. Rebecca was beautiful. And Rebecca was a servant. Um, of course, she had a brother that causes trouble, right? Okay, you can. Am I right? You, this is this and this is the this is the longest love story. But Laban is a pain, so you can jump over there to around verse twenty nine, and here's the, the. It's good news, but it's also bad news for Isaac because it says Rebecca had a brother. 
His name was Laban. And he is a thorn in the flesh. But you can read about Laban. Um, but the last thing I want you, I'm not going to read all this just for the sake of time. But go to verse, uh, I'm, I'm in, go to verse 60, go to chapter, I know we'll go to 60 verses. Go to verse uh, 60, uh, let me pick up at verse, uh, just pick up at verse, I think it's 66, and it says, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. That's the first time you have marital love in the Bible. Isn't that something? Bet you didn't know that. First time in the Bible, marital love. And he loved her. Think about what a short time that he had had with her. But all that Rebecca was, and it says, and he loved her. Uh, anyway, so I didn't see he was confronted with his mother's death. That's, that's a whole other story. Now go to Ephesians chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. I just think that's just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful story. Ephesians chapter 5, and this is probably the most often read to me, the most often read passage on marriage, probably, I know in the New Testament. Before I read it, I'm going to just share with you four or five things that we know are true about marriage. By the way, the Bible does say, go find a spouse. It does say that. Uh, it, te it tells us that. <clears throat> Well, in the book of Genesis, it tells, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and go cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So it's telling the man to go find a wife, number one. But in the book of 1 Timothy, we may have time to get there in just a few minutes, but in the book of 1 Timothy, it tells uh, widows. Now listen, again, this is how wise the scriptures are. It doesn't say older widows, it says younger widows. Younger widows, it says, go get a husband, basically is what it says. Younger widows need to remarry because younger widows need to be married and they need to be raising more children. That's exactly what the text says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So the Bible does command us to get married. It wants us to get married in our culture now, again, you know, when Jesus, in the culture that Christ was born, in the, in the culture of the first century, I'm not some great historian, but when you read, you find out that, that the age of getting married was much younger, almost that we wouldn't be comfortable with, but because of the culture and, and the, 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 the way life was, it, it was natural. But, you know, it wasn't unusual for 14 and 15-year-old girls to be married. And, and so they got married young. And I'm not promoting getting married that young, but I'm saying if you're going to get married, the Bible says get married. Love your spouse and have children. That's exactly what the Bible says. The culture that we live in wants to throw out some options. The culture we live in might say, that's fine, but what you first need to do is graduate with your Ph.D., 
be making $150,000 a year, then you can get married. That's maybe what the culture says to do. It may say, wait. Or it may say, it's okay to get married, but won't you wait till you turn 35 before you have your first children? So you will be financially secure when you have children. By the way, I'm glad I didn't wait till I was 35 to have my first child. I can barely handle my grandchildren now. So, but the cult, what I'm saying is, and I'm not going to get into all the things the culture sends, gives us opportunities but the Bible says, it doesn't give us an age group, but the Bible says, get married, have children, and love the Lord Jesus. That's basically the truth of the Bible. Get married, have children, and love Jesus. That's it. And love the church. That's basically the Christian life as described for married people. I wrote down, I've got six or seven more at the house that didn't even bring with me, but here's some things marriage does. These are not profound, these things you know them to be true, but why we get married? Why would the Bible say get married? Uh, and of course, there is a gift of celibacy, okay? We know that. Uh, the Apostle Paul had the gift. He says that. He says, I wish all of you could be like me. But he said, you can't. But God has gifted me. So, so Paul said not everybody has to be married. He had a gift where he didn't have to be married. But most people need to be married. That, that's, what the, that's what the Bible tells us. Most people are, are going to need a spouse. Not everybody, but most. But, but why would we get married? Why does the Bible say, or the purposes of marriage? Why does it promote marriage? Why, when you open up the book of Genesis, does the first thing you meet is, the first, is marriage? A man and a woman. You know, the picture of the woman made from the man and brought back to the man and the two becoming one flesh it's because of the importance of the covenant. Well, number one, and I'm not going to take these a long way. I just want you to hear them. Number one, the reason we get married, or the Bible says we need to get married, is the mortification of sin, mortify, to kill. You will not be confronted with your selfishness the way you're confronted with your selfishness unless you get married. Okay? If you live as a single, there are things about you that will never be confronted by somebody else because you're not with somebody else all the time. The One of the things that the Bible teaches that, that marriage does is marriage mortifies or it kills sin. It, it, makes, it makes us deal with our sin nature. It confronts me with my selfishness, with my little world of one. Even though I'm married and been married a good long time, I still want to live as if I'm not sometimes. So it confronts, so, so scholars put it like this, it's the mortification of sin. And, and you find that really here in Ephesians 5, if you have your Bibles open there, just listen to a couple of these verses. Ephesians 5, I'm going to pick up verse 22, Ephesians 5, 22. Um, by the way, if you have your Bibles open and you have an ESV, let me read this. It says, Verse 22 says, wives, and most of your Bibles will have the word submit, but it's italicized. You with me? Okay. Or maybe in parentheses. Well, it's because it's not in the original text because we've already dealt with submission. Now, I won't get into that now, but it says, literally it reads, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself 
its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's a picture that every husband is representative. It's not that every husband is Christ. It's that every Christian husband represents Christ. Then he says, husbands. This is where we get into mortification of sin. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, Men, men love the submissive verses. They love those submissive verses. But moms and ladies and wives, if he takes you to verse 22 through 24, don't let him skip verse 25. Amen? Okay. You want a submissive wife, you love her like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. He surrendered himself. He sacrificed himself. I think about the wash basin and the towel picture in John 13. He emptied himself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. Now, folks, for us, what God does unilaterally as God, he makes us judicially, he makes you and I righteous. So when you believed in Christ, you know, we dealt with salvation this past Wednesday night. And we know that there's a righteousness that comes. There's two ways to get righteous. To be perfect and obey the law perfectly. Can anybody do that? No. There's another righteousness, the Bible says, that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Which one do you want? I want the faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a righteousness that, that is mine because I believe in Jesus. That's the righteous I want. So... So, so judicially, when I came to Christ, He considers me righteous judicially. But practically, I've got to grow unto holiness because I'm not holy practically. So I'm not perfect. So, I've got to, so, so this, this is mortification of the flesh. This is a mortification of sin where I have to continue to be cleansed, the washing, uh, the purifying. So it says that He might sanctify her, okay, he gave himself up for the church, just as a husband's going to do for his wife, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Folks, that never stops in the Christian life. We are continually washed by the word. And so, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So I want you to know that God designed marriage, at least for one reason. One reason is it helps mortify sin. 
us being married uh, helps us to kill sin. It helps us to confront sin. Hold your finger here at Ephesians and, and go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, look at verse... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and look at verse uh, look at verse 32, okay? These are marriage, these are verses about the wisdom of marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse, uh, I'm looking for a, somebody bring me a Kleenex. Robbie, would you mind bringing me some Kleenexes? Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Okay? Don't you want to be free from anxieties? Let me ask you something. Who has more anxieties, a married man or a single man? Married man. I'm not making that up. That's what the Bible says. Who has more anxieties? A married man or a single man? A married man. This is what exactly it's going to tell us. It says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's his life. His call in life is to be a husband. And his interests are divided. That's, uh, you know, these people that can put these succinctly say, if you want to serve Jesus with all that you are, stay single. If you want to become like Jesus quicker, get married. That's what they say, okay? So, it says, but... The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. You know, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, if you're married, you've got to worry about that. If you're single, you don't care. A box of Cheerios will do. It just doesn't matter. Then he says, look, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So... In the world that we live in, 2,000 years after the New Testament was written, it's a fact. Unmarried people don't have as many anxieties as married people. And married people, though they're personally pursuing Christ-likeness, they also have to worry about their spouse in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And they have a lot, a lot more concerns. So, one of the things that marriage does is marriage mortifies to kill a mortician, mortify means to kill, to kill sin, mortify the flesh or mortify sin. So that's one thing that marriage does. Number two, we'll cover this 
ad nauseum when we talk about sexual identity. But number two is why get married? Because when you get married, you have offspring and you model for them manhood and womanhood. The Bible tells us things about being feminine. The Bible tells us things about being manly. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 16 says, Act like men. And then it says, For daughters, as a daughter is, I mean, as a mother is, so will be her daughter. Ezekiel 16. So if you have a godly mama, the goal is for her to raise a godly feminine daughter. If you have a godly husband he, and father, he's going to raise masculine, godly men. This is God's design. And it starts in the book of Genesis. So another reason why we get married is because we, it helps us model or teach biblical manhood or womanhood. Um, this is where... Uh, he's, he's probably speeding. Uh, Deuteronomy, take your Bibles. I'm going to get me a motorcycle one day. You can see that, can't you? Do you know I used to have a scooter? Did you used to, I used to have a scooter. A scooter. Can you see me on a scooter? I rode it all the time. Motor blew up, but I did ride it for a long time. Listen, that's none of your business. Deuteronomy. Listen, go to Deuteronomy. Let me show you. This is just awesome Bible verses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let me just show you this real quickly. Talking about marriage. I know I'm going to run out of time. Somebody call it out to me just so I'll know. Who? Okay. Deuteronomy 22. Just look at these words of wisdom. And, and again, the law, God's law, God's laws of marriage still apply, right? This Old Testament, most of these are not thrown out with the bathwater when Jesus came. They're still biblical truths for us to, to, to go by. But I'm in Deuteronomy 22. Look at verse, uh, look at this, verse 5. A woman, just I'm briefly talking about manhood and womanhood. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Look at verse uh I keep going, but look at verse uh, look at verse 19. There's several of these here. I, I'm sorry. Uh, pick up the verse 19. Uh, says, uh, well, we can't start there. Verse 17 says, And behold, he has, uh, this is where he accuses somebody of not being a virgin. He has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. There's a whole story here where the parents are having to prove their daughter's virginity because uh, the parents are responsible for raising their godly wife, their daughter. You with me? Great picture here. So when, he, when the, we're adults, when in the passage here, there's a male that gets married and he suspects maybe his wife, his new wife was not a virgin. So now the parents are, are in the context are saying, yes, she is and we'll prove it. So... So that's kind of the thing. Uh, so he says, I did not find that in your daughter. And yet, this is the, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak, again, this is adult stuff, before the elders of the city, 
Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. Isn't that awesome? Protecting, her, protecting not only her reputation, but penalizing him for offending her and, and making a false accusation. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. It's protecting her. He made a false accusation, but he cannot divorce her. Then they shall bring out the young woman uh, to the door of her father's house, and, and the men of her city shall, st there's a, this is where she has committed, stone her to death with, with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by, by whoring in her father's house. Uh, so they shall purge this from you know from their from their midst. Uh, then in verse thirty, here's another. These are all just marriage laws. Uh, verse twenty eight: a, a man's if a man meets a bird, look at verse thirty. It says, "A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness." All these are just principles of what it means to be a godly male or a godly female. So let me hurry. Let me finish because I want to walk through some more scriptures. Marriage is good to mortify sin. Marriage is good for biblical manhood and womanhood. Marriage is good and it's the place for bringing up godly children. The world that we're in, raising godly children in an ungodly world, the place that that happens is in a Christian home. So marriage is good, number one, because it helps us mortify sin. Number two, it helps us develop biblical men and biblical women feminine and masculine. Number three, it helps us bring up godly children. Marriage is, is the context of raising godly children. One of my favorite Bible verses in Malachi 2 says, God's asking the prophet Malachi a question. He says, why am I making two people one flesh? And then he answers Malachi. He says, number one, I'm going to give them a portion of my spirit. And then he says, because I want godly offspring. Why does God allow us to have offspring? Well, Malachi 2, 15 and 16 says, because God wants godly offspring. You can see that. Uh, I know, Robbie, we thought about reading this last week. When you read the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, Okay. This is where it talks about binding God's word on the on the frontlets of your face, on your head. Bind them everywhere. When you get up, you talk about God's word. When you rest, you talk about God's words. When you go to bed, you talk about God's word. This is how you raise. It's the context of a Christian home where you raise godly children. Now, let me just say, I'm going to have to stop. We're out of time. Here, here's something. Now, I'm no wise sage. I, I, just stuff I read, okay? I, I'm not going to act like I'm some know-it-all. But one of the issues you get into when you talk about raising godly children is sometimes we want our children to act a certain way around other people to make ourselves look good. Are you with me? We feel guilty because really how they're acting reflects on us. That's how we look at it. And so we'll, we'll, we'll manipulate them and I've done this myself. I'm a granddad, and my 
I'll do this to my own grandkids, I'll do this to my own children, or did do it to my own children. You'll manipulate them in some way to get them to act right when they're around other people. Right? Have you ever done that? Do it all the time. Whether it's giving them a treat, what promising to take them to Dollar General, take them to a movie, uh, buy them a Snickers bar, uh, whatever it would be, you, you're just somehow trying to make a deal with them to where they're going to act right around other people. And part of that is your self-preservation. You, you're doing it for your selfish reasons. But here's the problem with that. Uh, there's, I, have a, have a, a, I have a series in my office called, uh, I think it says, it's by uh, Gary Smalley. It says, have a new child in seven days, something like that. Have a new child in seven days, three days, whatever it is. And, and the whole part of the strategy is, can you really manipulate a child to act a certain way under certain circumstances? Well, yes, you can. But you're missing the whole concept. It's not supposed to be an act. What's the bigger issue? The act or the heart? The heart. It's a deep well. Luke 6 says that. It, it's a matter of the heart. We need to be concerned. When you're raising godly children, it's, it's a matter of the heart. Let's just finish this. Go to Luke 6, and this will be the last thing I read. Go to Luke 6. I, I, I'm out of time anyway. So Luke 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 6. But we forget that it's not just the behavior, it's the seed, what's in the heart. You need, if you're raising godly children, you want to deal with matters of the heart. And here's the heart. They're a sinner. They have a wicked, unruly heart. And it's that heart that needs to be challenged. Luke 6, verse 43, says, uh, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. See, when we correct our children, we, we want them to understand, I'm a sinner. I know that whether I'm talking to my grandchildren, children... I'm a sinner, so when I correct somebody from doing so, I know what it's like. I'm a disobedient child of God. So if I'm correcting my child, I have a leg up. I can explain to them because I understand what it means to be disobedient to a parent. I'm disobedient to God all the time. And it's not about changing just the act. I want to change their heart. I want them to feel conviction about sin. That's what you, you want them in the depths of their soul not to alter their behavior so you won't get mad at them or so they won't get a whipping next week, but they alter their behavior because it's a change of their heart. So that's why it says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the, the mouth speaks. Let me, let me just give you one more little illustration Let's stand together so you'll know I'm going to close on 30 minutes late. 
Let me tell you now, I was reading. You know, it's a great... He's talking about marriage, how precious marriage is. You ready? Uh, this is in Numbers. I won't go there, but just one thing to quit to, to end on. Just think about what God's provisions for marriage. Many of you already know this. Some of you may not. It's just an interesting thing. I'd forgotten about it. But when somebody, this is in uh, Numbers, when an Israelite got married, when the man got married, when the husband, I'm sorry, male and female, when they got married, uh, the, the husband was, did not have to serve in the military nor do any kind of public duty for a year. He didn't have to, he didn't have to go march in the army. He didn't have to go to the front lines. He didn't have to serve on, on committees or administrative things for the cities and public acts because it says his concern is for his wife. So there it is in the Old Testament. God made a provision. So when, when a couple got married for a whole year, the, the husband could spend the whole year making his marriage strong before he had any other commitments outside the home. Folks, when you read stuff like that, it makes you realize that the covenant of marriage is God's design, and it's very, very important. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Um, Father, thank you for the, God, the beauty of marriage. Thank you for how we raise godly children in marriages, godly marriages. Thank you that husbands and wives become sanctified in marriage. Father, thank you that the Bible says that we experience the call of God as a married couple uh, that unmarried people do not understand. Thank you that, that many of us in here have received the married call, that, that we now have a calling as a married couple. Lord, to be couple saints together to, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that uh, every one of us in here is really a picture of how much Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for her. Help us to be serious about our witness to the lost world. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.